Welcome to the Fireside Show. My name is Wojciech Wiengzinski and I will be your host. Hello everybody, welcome to the Fire Science Show. Today we're going to do the first in history of the podcast session of questions and answers. Very happy to do that. So as you notice on the webpage of the podcast, there's a button to send voicemail and you can use that to send me a voicemail with a question or comment or your point of view that can be shared in the podcast, which I will happily do in sessions just like this one. Uh, or you can just send me an email through the contact form or directly. You can always reach me at Wojciech at firesciencesshow.com. And I'm very happy to include your views and opinions and questions in this type of episodes. I hope this allows us to build a better relation. And uh, I mean, I'm usually the one who's asking the questions in here. And uh, this time... It's all in your hands. You have a chance to ask the questions. I will try to answer them on my own. If I feel I'm not uh, best suited to answer the question, I'm going to try to reach a former podcast uh, guest to find an answer for you, and we'll see how it goes. So, yeah, let's start the first Q&A. Okay, so uh, for the first question for today's Q&A, I brought guests, man of the podcast of October. Hi, Piotr. Nice to have you back. Hello, our local ITB expert on fire resistance. And as the question is on fire resistance, I couldn't resist to, to bring Piotr back. Uh, the question comes from Miliwan, and she's asking about fire resistance testing. In fact, the question is, in Australia, our fire resistance test methods tests the floor and wall assembly separately in order to assign a fire resistance to each element. Recently, the building certifiers have been asking questions about the likely fire resistance at interfaces. Uh, what's the likely impact of on the fire resistance level at the corner fire that can affect both the floor beam and the steel columns within the fire-related wall? I understand that the standard fire test setup is not set up for this at all. Is there an inherent point of failure at these interfaces? I think that's a quite interesting question about going out from just testing a single element to more like a full-frame performance of the building. But Piotr, Please, if you can answer Millie about the fire resistance of interfaces and how our testing methods cover that, floor is yours. So as it happened, I actually have some experience with the Australian standard. I've seen that uh, AS1504 standard, and let's say it's a very, very limited version of what we do in Europe. So indeed, there is absolutely no part of testing standard about linear joint seals. In Europe, we have a specific standard for, for, for that test particularly, and this is the EN1366 part four. So to answer the question, if it's a connection between walls and floors or between floors or between walls themselves, this standard is absolutely meant for the assessment of fire resistance of that connection, of that linear joint. And there is a number of options that you can test and number of results that you will then be able to address, like including movement, without movement, like linear joint seals made on site or at the factory, the testing of slices, the interface between each part of these joints, of these seals in, in those joints. 
so for walls and floors, there is a standard and we do this test on a daily basis and that's your, that's your way to go. And it includes the joint. It's, it's, it tells you about the fire resistance of the joint, right? Yes. It tells you about the resistance of the joint and you have to, and your supporting construction, which is your floor and your wall are standardized. So then you have some field of application of your test results, depending on what construction type that you've used. But some general information may be also drawn from the test of a wall itself because its supporting structure also contains uh, fixed edges. And one of them is a fixed edge to the lintel. And this lintel is stimulating reinforced concrete floor, for example. What do you mean about supporting structure? You mean that the frame where you put the testing element when you place it on the furnace? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. There are also types of supporting constructions that you may use, and they will also give you some information. But the specific standard for these joints between walls and floors, or between floors and floors and walls and walls, that are all types of connections, the T-joint, the V-joint, H-joint, and so on. This is the EN66 part four that you want to go for. And as the standard uh, has been refreshed uh, not so long ago, it's uh, almost 60 pages long. It contains quite a number of details. I won't go into them, but uh, that's your way to go. Sorry. I'm going to steal Millie's question and uh, turn it into my own. How do you feel about testing these joints and connections in um, full-scale natural fire experiments? Because we, we happened to, to, to do a lot of them at ITB recently, erecting a frame of a building or a part of the building, uh, making a natural, let's say, office fire inside of that. And, and in every of these tests, we, we had clients who asked us to, to do additional measurements at the, the edges, at the, the connections. You think this can give a reasonable information about the performance of such a joint in a fire or, or you would rather test it on a furnace based on the standard you just mentioned? Generally, I am a big fan of testing uh, more complex structures rather than isolated elements. Very often we'll see, for example, for floors where, where they have combustible infills that will get fire at the free edge. And that's a problem because it wouldn't normally occur over there. When we test some modular containers or stuff like that, corners, the joints are absolutely necessary to be tested as well because they do provide load bearing capacity to the elements. Uh, they do provide additional insulation and they create natural fire exposure conditions rather than insulating the, the, in, the elements in the, themselves and testing them separately. As for the testing furnace versus natural test, well, I, I, it's like it is for, for, for any test. I mean... Natural test, like with a more complex structure with live fire load rather than burners acting uh, as, as the fire load, this generates a completely different environment for the test specimen and uh, its behavior may be very different from the one on the furnace, maybe more representative to, to reality. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I would like to the take out of my, uh, my opinion be is that we should, as much as we can, include th those details in every test, whether it's on furnace or whether it's a uh, real fire. And also answering the second part of the uh, of the question from Midi about the connection between uh, elements like beams and columns, especially made of steel, as they will usually require some fire protection. The approach uh, in the standard is that you do not test these connections. I mean, they are uh, represented a bit mm -hmm. uh, to not go into much of a detail, but uh, let's say if you test into mesent coatings, you get these steel plates at the top 
of the uh, of the short i sections to short i section columns to represent possible connection to a beam where you also put some fire protection but otherwise it, they are not present you test isolated elements and i think that the reason for this is similar to the one given in eurocode 3 that we also use to assess steel structures in fire and the idea is that at the connections you will most likely get more mass or more steel than on a, uh, on a singular element. And when you get more mass, your section factor gets lower, the heating conditions are so that the temperature should be lowered than at the uh, span of the element, let's say. So until your fire protection is continuous, uh, there are no gaps, and you, you fire protect everything, including bolts uh, and welds uh, and so on. And... Uh, the, the additional amount of steel, of mass, will give you the benefit of lower temperature. So if the, if the connections are designed properly, by which I mean that they are stronger than the elements themselves, then there shouldn't be any problem over there. But you have, you have to keep the fire protection continuous in, in those places. And as, as you know very well, people hate doing furnace tests because of the costs involved and, and complexities and stuff like that. Any, any way to test joints at a smaller scale? I'm also thinking about, you know, testing multiple joints within one test, or maybe there's a, there's a simpler method uh, that, that can unravel the, the behavior of such joint. Or maybe numerical method modeling is, is a way. What, what do you think? I'm thinking that testing multiple joints is like a revenge of the customer over the lab because the, the standard allows for multiple joints in one test. And I've seen some tests with, I don't know, countless connections, countless joints, like 400 600 thermocouples at once like like okay. a nightmare so yeah the, the, there's definitely a way to improve the cost result ratio let's say uh definitely possible and definitely allowed in the standard even for the connection between walls and floors i, I remember some of my own tests where i've had like 13 types of connections that tested at once so definitely you can improve the, the cost uh, here Okay, the, the takeaway for the clients, if you hate us, if you want to take revenge on us, please uh, give us this extremely expensive <laughs> test to do. And we will be extremely unhappy and pleasant with doing this this for you. And Piotr, thank you very much for this comprehensive answer. Anyone who wants to find out more about their connections, you're very welcome to come here and, and burn down a joint with me and Piotr. <laughs> Thank you very much, Wojciech, for having me again. And uh, good luck to everyone. Cheers, man. Bye. Okay. I hope that uh, answers your question, Mili, quite well. And if you need more, you can always reach Piotr and he's going to tell you more about fire resistance of joints. I, I mean, he can talk about fire resistance for hours. And I don't want this episode to be too long. Now let's move to the second question asked by Elena Fung. She's been a longtime friend of the show and she's actively encouraged me a year ago, which I appreciate a lot. It helped me do some fun stuff in, in the podcast. And now Elena is researching car parks and she's been asking me about the Polish experiences with smoke detection in car parks. She's wondering how smoke detection is carried uh, over the world. And, and I think it's a brilliant question to ask, actually. Now I realize that we I think almost not at all spoken about smoke detection. We did touch it a bit in the space episode, uh, but uh, I don't know if that counts. So I must say, some time ago, when we were hosting SFP uh, PBD conference in Warsaw, I've met some people from Australia, and they wondered how we do 
smoke controlling car parks and I've told them we often use jet vent system longitudinal ventilation in car parks and they were very intrigued and but they were keep, kept asking like but but how do jet vents know when to start how how do they know when to operate and I, I didn't know how to answer that question because it's, for me it seems quite odd to ask about it and eventually I told them yeah I mean is that isn't that obvious I mean there's smoke detection that detects the fire and, and they just go and they were like whoa so shocked do you have smoke detection in car parks? Then I realized it's uh, it might be a cultural thing or or local thing to to have a certain systems in your buildings. And in my country, for all the car parks above fifteen hundred square meters, we do have smoke detection in them. So pretty much all larger car parks are equipped with with smoke detection. And I think it's critical to to have that type of a system. One that you want uh, the fire brigade to come as early as possible to your car park. I mean, you have 15, maybe 20 minutes to react before the fire can spiral out of control. I'm, of course, that can happen earlier, but, but the typical growth of the fire in the car park, it will take some time to build up. So, so early access for firefighters, early information to firefighters may be actually critical in, in stopping the fire. The second thing is the car parks are not always full of people. I mean, that's a good thing from life safety perspective, I guess. But if the fire happens at 5 a.m. under a residential building, it may take a really long time to notice it. And this is a case we had in Poland, which led to a very devastating fire of a car park exactly under a residential building. So I think the early detection and detection at all is is very helpful in, in fire safety of car parks. Now, in terms of how we detect the fires, that's that's a tricky one. I think in Poland, the most common would be uh, multi-detector sensors, some sort of heat and, and smoke detectors, or maybe CO and smoke detectors, or, or triple-sensored ones. They are very good in keeping the f- false alarms away, because in car parks, you're going to have some fumes after all. I mean, it's, it's a car park. So we would use these these types of sensors. Uh, very rarely it would be just purely uh, smoke optical detectors. And I don't think I've ever seen one just on heat detectors. I don't think that would work very well in, in a car park. So um, definitely there there is a choice of devices to be used in there. Uh, one interesting thing in, in many car parks in Poland, we also have the LPG gas detection systems. That's also something I'm not sure how Common is that in, in your countries, but in Poland, LPG vehicles are very, very popular. And you have these separate sets of gas detectors at the floor of your building because LPG is, is more dense than air, uh, scattered around the, the car park. And they also trigger operation of the smoke control system. It's usually triggered at the sanitary mode, not necessarily the fire mode, but it can also trigger the fire mode without issuing a fire alarm. So, um, yeah, a separate set of devices that also control the operation of the systems in, in, in your car park. I, I hope that answers uh, your question. To a degree, I'm not an expert in fire detection. I guess I should find one and then get an episode about how smoke sensors work. Because I know many scientists have actually no clue how smoke detectors work. And that's, uh, that's a fascinating part of fire science after all. So, Elena, thank you very much for your question. And now we jump into question number three. This third question is is very interesting. It touches the architecture and fire safety. It was sent by a listener 
Ikponidum Friday, and yeah, here the the podcast is yours. Yeah, we like to ask, how do we balance aesthetics design in terms of architectural buildings with fire load? Because I understand recently we see people that build so many materials, especially wooden materials, easy for interior decoration of buildings. And considering the fire load in that building, it's really high. So how do we balance aesthetics and fire load? Okay, I'm going to try to take this on my own. If I fail, let me know and I'll find someone better. <laughs> so early in my career days, I have figured out that we cannot really change the way how architects build buildings. And beauty is a function of a building. I mean, even in uh, the architectura from Roman times, uh, I think the first piece of literature on building engineering, it was already defined that the beauty is one of the functions of the building. And I, I feel that truly is. I mean, buildings and their aesthetics are, are super important. I, I was raised, you know, in a communist blocks. Uh, every building in my half kilometer proximity looked the same and there were all equally horrible, not a very pleasant uh, view. Then I moved to Warsaw. It's much better in here now as the city is, is growing, is getting beautiful. There's so much beautiful architecture around. And I really enjoy it. I just feel better. It feels better to live in, in a beautiful space. So I, I think beauty is an important function of the building, really, really an important one. Not something we should cancel or, or, or play down when designing our stuff. We're fire engineers. We should design with whatever comes our way. Here, I think an interesting episode to listen to is episode 15 with Benjamin Rolf who is working with an architect bureau, and uh, that's his bread and butter, how to define fire safety in a aesthetically pleasing buildings. So definitely take a listen to that one. Now, in terms of your work as fire safety engineer, first, I think the most important thing in balancing beauty and fire safety is actually trying to do that. I mean, having fire safety engineer involved as early in the project as possible, where the most fundamental decisions are being taken, this is the first guarantee that fire safety and aesthetics will not have to compete up between each other, but uh, aesthetics can be achieved while maintaining fire safety. So, so first thing, get a fire safety engineer on the project early, because that will help you make informed decisions on the materials, on the settings on the, the, the shape of the building that promotes fire safety. Second thing is you can design fire safe buildings with, let's say, not the fire safest materials. It's all about how much and where you place them. I think a great example is in, with timber compartments. Everyone would like to have all walls and, and ceilings exposed, but do we really need that? Maybe aesthetics can be filled with just having the ceiling exposed, for example, and the walls uh, protected with fireboards, which tremendously changes the fire behavior of the whole compartment. That's just one example. Another example is, is I always like to build larger, like bigger spaces promote fire safety. They change the, the, the fire dynamics in your compartment. In larger buildings, larger volumes, you can provide more safety. So sometimes you can maybe countermeasure some choices with, with more space, or maybe with active systems like sprinklers, water mist, smoke control. There are solutions that 
allow you to take into account that someone wants to do, do something in a very specific way, maybe because of the aesthetics, and you can find a solution that covers that gap in the fire safety of your building by proposing an alternative scenario, alternative solution, additional means of protection, or maybe simple choices. Of course, you also want to block decisions that inherently lead to very dangerous solutions. And, and there, that is where a fire engineer should come in and say, okay, this combination of materials is absolutely dreadful. I, I have blocked uh, some stuff like that. I remember a, a tunnel, a tramway tunnel, where they wanted to line the tunnel walls with HPL boards, you know, the ones that we know from facades that burn quite vigorously, even though they are can be done in class C or class B, quite high, but in very specific arrangements, it doesn't matter that much. So a very aesthetically pleasing material, but uh, from my opinion, quite a dangerous one. I've told them that, I've explained them why, they have made some smart changes, replaced them with some sort of A2 boards that look very similar. And we have both. We have beauty. We have the fire safety in, in that building. So yeah, it's definitely achievable, not easy to balance. I don't have a, one single equation for safety and, 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 and beauty, but uh, I really think beauty is an important objective and I really think the role of fire engineer is to make that happen in the building. The fourth question came from a listener from Iran, uh, Neda. Well, Neda, the, the floor is yours. Hi, I am Neda, an assistant professor of fire department of road housing and urban development research center of Iran. In Iran, we do not have fire engineering as a course in our universities. All we have related to fire and buildings is the fire department of RUHD, which I am working in. So, you can imagine the situation in which I am. I have to be familiar to different aspects of fire behavior in buildings to develop codes, guidelines, and regulations for near 19 million people's buildings. And all I know about fire is my self-studies. So, I really appreciate your efforts in producing such an advantageous show. Thanks for your good podcast. And I want to ask you to provide a written version of Fire Science Show, like Fire Paper or something like that, because sometimes I need to refer to one of the shows and I cannot because it's not written. Thanks. Well, first of all, I'm hugely thankful for your kind words about the podcast. And I'm delighted that it's a way for you to find knowledge about fire safety. So first, let me refer on building your, your country's fire safety. I think that's an enormously responsible job that you have. And while providing uh, fire safety to the whole country, having ability to actually affect that, it's something that many of us dream of in our countries. I'm not sure if we really would like to have that sort of obligation or, or possibilities in here. It must be very, very tough, as you mentioned. If I had a blank page to build fire safety for my nation, I think the first step that I would take would be to uh, just pick up a prescriptive code, a model code, and build something around it. Maybe something like IBC, the International Building Code. Though I understand that, that political constraints may be here against you because that, that's something that originates from US. Um, I guess many listeners would go crazy like, Wojciech, what do you mean take a prescriptive code and employ it? You were, you were the chosen one. You were meant to stop them, not join them. I, I agree, but uh, in the end, if you are in a country 
where there is not that great fire safety education. As Neda mentioned, she is struggling to find resources. I highly doubt there is a lot of skilled fire safety engineers in the country. Going performance-based design way it could be a recipe for disaster. And, and prescriptive codes have a history of providing fire safety worldwide. So I guess that would be a good starting point. Pick a model code, try to implement it with modifications that are reasonable for your local requirements, local engineering practices, and execute that. And eventually try to find a way to put more performance-based engineering in, in the mix of the of the low and, and see where, where you get with that. I, I think that would be the, the safest bet at the place where you are. It, it's difficult, uh, and but definitely you have a lot of space for creative work and I really wish that uh, you find a way to, to, to provide this fire safety to your country. If you do, please let me know. I would love to talk about that. The second question you've asked is, how uh, to cite the podcast, how to refer to the fire shows. So at this point, every episode is transcribed, which means there's a written version of it in the in the episode webpage. These transcriptions are not perfect because they are done by AI. Uh, the AI is, is improving, but it still has some silly mistakes in it. Please forgive me that, but it's an enormous amount of work to, to transcribe uh, spoken podcast episodes to written form. I'm not really sure if you should refer to them, though. Keep in mind, it's it's a podcast. I mean, I try to be as objective as I can, and I bring guests that, in my own opinion, they are world-class specialists in what they're talking about. However, it's not peer-reviewed. It's inevitably biased in some ways. I cannot guarantee that uh, what we say here is an objective truth, if, if anything like that exists. Even in, in science, there are opinions, and that, that's why, why we have peer-reviewed science in the first place. So I'm not sure if I would like to refer the most important decisions to what you've heard on the podcast. Now, a good idea is that most of my guests come here to talk about their research, about the things they did in the past, and most of these things are published in very well-established peer-reviewed journals. And I try to link to these pieces of work in the show notes. If I don't, please reach out to me or reach out to my guest. We will be super happy to, to direct you to a citable source that's very credible, unbiased, peer-reviewed, which you can definitely use in your work. And I think that would be the, the best way to, to cite the podcast through the work that has been talked uh, over in here. I hope that that helps you and add all the best in, in building fire safety in Iran. And the final question of today comes from Szymek Matkowski. Szymek is an architect. He's, uh, in his free time, he's designing space habitats in Nexus Aurora project. And you can imagine before the uh, space episode, he sent me like 20 questions to ask to Dr. Urban from NASA. I've used some of them. Thank you, Shimek. It was very helpful to see what's interesting the habitat community. And I hope I've managed to ask some important things online that, that help you design your projects. Now, on to your question. You have asked me about boutique shops in, in shopping malls referring to an episode that I did about the smoke control from malls and what drives the smoke control and how can we design it better. Uh, your question is twofold. First, you ask, why don't we just connect the smoke reservoirs above uh, multiple 
smaller shops to create one large smoke reservoir and exhaust from that. And the second one is is why I would like to have the smoke in the mall in the first place when there are people, when there's evacuation taking place from the mall itself. Both are great questions, so, so let me start with the first one. Um, connecting boutiques is technically possible, and if you, if you can do that and have a joint smoke control system that extracts the smoke from all of them all together, that probably is a very, very good strategy, especially that you most likely will have quite tall compartment, which makes... Uh, extracting smoke easier and, and more efficient. So if you can do that, that then probably that's, that's a great way to go. However, I always found troubles merging them. First of all, because of the acoustics, these shops tend to like to torture people inside with their own music and all communicates. It, it, sometimes due to acoustics in general, we, we had to compartmentalize the, the shopping malls into smaller units. So it was not technically possible to merge them above the default the ceilings. Second thing could be something as protection of the property or, or just separating them so they can be sold as separate units. So I think the limitations come from outside the fire safety world. I never could really merge these uh, shopping units easily. If in your system, wherever you work, it is possible, I guess that's a that's a very decent strategy. And the bigger the joint uh, compartment, as long as it's not crazy large, but it's very hard to, to, to extract smoke from something that's just 100 or 200 square meters. If you can merge five or six of, of compartments like that into one larger one, it's certainly easier to extract the smoke from, from. The second part, why do I want to have smoke in my mall? Why not just from that shop? Well, it is very difficult to extract a large amount of smoke from a small shopping uh, unit. You would need quite large um, exhaust rates in that shop to succeed. Talking about 50, 60, 70,000 cubic meters per hour per shopping unit. Sometimes it's impossible to, to create duct that large and successfully extract for a super, super small space. In contrary, I mean, the mall is... is quite safe space, even if you have smoke in it. I mean, the smoke, um, because of buoyancy, it will go up. And usually the mall is, is quite a large space. You have a giant smoke reservoir in it, and you can extract quite efficiently from it. So when we were designing extraction from malls, from common malls in, in shopping malls, we very rarely reached a scenario in which in a single shop, fire, we would ever have smoke at the height of evacuation. We always kept it above. That, that was our design objective, and we, we kept it above, not just for the evacuation time, but usually we kept it above the evacuation pathways infinitely. As the fire reached some steady state size, we were just extracting the smoke as, as it entered the, the, the mole reservoir, and it the layer never declined to the level where people are. So I'd say if you can design a system like that, it's neutral to the fire safety of the mall. So you still have a space that is viable for evacuation. You still have a space that's viable for firefighters to enter and uh, do their jobs. And at the same time, you have space from which extracting the smoke is um, very easy. I think I would call it a very cost-effective solution. Definitely easier to put two, three large fans in uh, the mall on the roof somewhere with very short ducts with 
direct exhaust to the atmosphere rather than making complicated smoke control system connecting to the individual shopping units with a mass of dampers that will need to open and close depending on where the fire is. I mean, the alternative is a very, very complicated and expensive system. And in the end, if you design it well, if the exits of the shops are large enough, tall enough, you really can reach the level of safety same as if the, 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 the boutique shops were individually extracted. So, yeah, cost-effective solution that doesn't hinder the safety of them all. If um, someone has a different opinion, I would love to hear it. I would love to learn how you do shopping malls in your countries. The way how I did it in Poland, the way how I investigated it in my PhD is, is just like I said. And uh, from my experience, that worked. That worked well. So we are uh, sticking to that, I guess. And that's all of it. Uh, five questions uh, asked and answered on the first question and answers episode of the Fire Science Show. I hope it went well and you've enjoyed that. Thank you very much for all the people who sent their questions. It was a huge joy to work with them and try and answer them. And I'm looking forward to, to more questions asked. As, said, as mentioned in the beginning of the episode, there's a send voicemail button on the webpage through which you can send me your pre-recorded question and I'm going to play it in here like you've heard in some of them. You can also send me an email and I will just read it out and try and answer. If I cannot, I'm going to find a guest who can and no matter what, I'm going to try and, and find you an answer to the problem that you have and I'm super curious of your opinions or Maybe you do something different. Like, I'm really, really interested if someone is doing something in fire safety that is completely different than how I discuss it in here. Like with the detection in car parks. It's so fascinating to find differences in the world that come from the culture, from engineering, from the local law, from maybe just a fire that happened 50 years ago in your particular country and it changed everything in that country. It's super interesting to find it out, and I'm very, very happy uh, to do that. So, yeah, looking forward to more of your questions and comments. One thing before we end, there is also the listener experience survey going on. You can find the links uh, on my social pages. You can find the link in the show notes to this episode, or you can find it in the newsletter if you signed up for the newsletter. And the listener survey is about you. It's about finding what you like about the show, what you don't like about the show, how the show can be improved. I really want to make this the best experience possible for all of you. So please share your opinions with me. I, I trust them. I, uh, I will do my best to, to move the show into the direction that reflects your overall opinions about how it goes so far. So yeah. I am an engineer. I like to take informed decisions. I need information. Please uh, give me it in the in the Google forums. That's it for the, today's Q&A one. Thank you very much for being here with me. And the podcast is back on Wednesday, two days from now. So uh, see you soon, friend. Cheers. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.